for the News and Observer. I'm Don Bond, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, February 20th, 2023. Uh, if you've heard in our podcast episodes the past couple weeks to celebrate Black History Month, Under the Dome has been focusing on Black lawmakers, relevant legislation, and of course, history itself. My guest today is State House Representative Amos Quick. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Quick is a Guilford County Democrat and pastor of Friendship Baptist Church in Lexington. He's from Greensboro, went to UNC Wilmington. Previously, he was pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in High Point and is a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity. I checked your bio stuff. Thank you very much. That's right. And these are, uh, you're a Saints fan. It's the same colors as uh, a... That's right. That's right. Diehard Saints fan. And with history that you probably know, it was Martin Luther King's fraternity too. Right. And the first African-American Greek letter organization. Okay. That's right. Uh, well, let's start talking about about history because of the timing of this, this month, and and I know that you've served on the on the school board too, and and then we'll we'll move on to talk about your time here, um, the legislature. But um, Black History Month is something that's taught in school. Was it taught in school when you were growing up? How do you remember it being this this separate additional thing to learn, um, or was it even like that growing up? So it wasn't. Um um, even though I went to a majority black high school, Dudley High School, um, uh, the the teachings there were of a curriculum that had some black history, but there was no, you know, definitive focus on black history. It's kind of you caught it in the mix of other things. Uh, the black history that I learned was kind of um, self-learning and being interested in going out and finding out about it. Being from Greensboro, of course, February 1st, 1960 is a very important date in Greensboro's history and in the nation's history where the uh, sit-in movement started at the Woolworths in downtown Greensboro. So that's a part of history that you just get because you're there where it happened. But um, as far as Black history courses and things like that. I don't remember those being, you know, highlighted in my high school curriculum. Do you remember as a kid, and you were born after um, Greensboro, right? I would think, yeah, yes, you're right. Right. Yeah. So, was it kind of local history that at some point you realized was actually natural history, the significant civil rights movement history? I think as yes, as you grow up, you you realize how important it was, and then uh, with North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, better known as A and T, with it being the centerpiece, one of the centerpieces of Greensboro, and then you finding out that those students were freshmen from A and T who started the civil rights, the sit-in movement, then you kind of want to know more and more and you kind of get some civic pride about that taking place in Greensboro and, and college students, African-American college students actually doing that. So, yeah, as you grow up, you kind of, yeah, this is pretty important. So when you um, you graduate high school, you said uh, you got to UNC Wilmington. What did, what did you study there? Psychology. And um, uh, I went to, to be a uh, pharmacist. But and when I sat in my first chemistry class, I realized I was not going to be a pharmacist because I, I, it, I just didn't, you know, I'm not a math guy. Uh, and my experience at UNC Wilmington was overall a good experience, but there were only 700 African-Americans at, at that time out of a population of 7,000 students. I was the president of the NAACP, uh, the college chapter there. So uh, the Wilmington 10, I got to meet Joe Wright, who was uh, one of the Wilmington 10. He kind of took me under his wing. He since passed. And uh, um, 
kind of nurtured me and, and showed me the ropes as it relates to the importance of uh, black history and being civically uh, engaged. Uh, Dr. Earl Sheridan, who was a political science professor there, he also was one of my mentors who got me interested in politics. And so when I uh, moved uh, from Wilmington to Charlotte, lived there for a couple years and then came back to Greensboro. When I came back to Greensboro, I became the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club, which was predominantly African-American kids. And it was from there that my appetite got um, uh, I, I whetted my appetite for um, getting involved in elective office. It was because of my work with the Salvation Army Boys and Girls Clubs and seeing the outcomes that those children had when they had resources, when they had opportunities, and when they had hope. I decided to run for the Board of Education. First time I ran for the Board of Education, I lost by 196 votes, um, but I was determined. I was determined that I would serve on the board. So in 2004, I was elected, uh, defeated an incumbent, and served on Guilford County's Board of Education for 12 years. So that's losing barely and then defeating an incumbent. Yeah. What, what happened there? Did you learn different things about campaigning or, or getting you know different support? Sure. Yeah, I, I learned that you have to campaign. When I lost, I learned that you have to really, this has to be what you do. Uh, I thought that uh, because I was uh, known in the community that that would just carry me over uh, the finish line, but uh, it did not. It brought me close, 196 votes. But then the second time I ran uh, in 2004, I really understood what campaigning was about, what organizing a campaign was about. And if I really wanted to impact the change that I desired, that I really needed to take campaigning to another level and was able to do that and win. What were the really big issues that were before the school board? You were served three terms, right? Three four-year terms is what I served. Uh, the big issues were resource allocation. Uh, we we uh, were redistricting our school zones. And in fact, before I was elected to the school board, I served on the redistricting committee uh, and found out how political it is where you draw a line for people's children to go to school. Uh, and that has some racial implications, that has some socioeconomic implications. And I discovered those things. And um, uh, that was kind of another impetus for me to run for the Board of Education. But really to make sure that there was uh, equity and resource allocation, uh, to make sure that uh, all students were given an opportunity to become re responsible, productive citizens, and that they started out with a good, sound, basic education, which which is what the North Carolina Constitution says they're supposed to have. You probably get different uh, interaction with constituents, you know, on the school board. I mean, than uh, here at the legislature, or is it when you go back when you go back home? You know, you hear from people, or how is that different versus, you know, when there's 120 of you on the House floor versus a school board meeting where you know the public comes every time, you know, and has a lot more access to you. You, you, you've accurately portrayed it. It's, it's a lot different in a lot of different ways. Number one, the impact is more immediate on the Board of Education because we're right there. Well, we're making decisions for local community, and uh, we're right there. Secondly, as you pointed out, the public has access to us. Every time we meet, the public can come in, and, and they did, and let us know um, um, what they thought about our opinions. And we found out that the ones who were upset were more likely to come and talk to us than ones who were happy. Uh, the third thing that I 
realized uh, serving on the Board of Education, again, as you rightly pointed out, that being one of 11 is a lot different from being one of 120, particularly when in the legislature I've never served in the majority party, so I don't know what it's like to be able to make decisions knowing that you have the majority support. Um, the school board also, um, I, I really enjoyed and loved my time on the Board of Education uh, because educating people's children is so important and impactful, um, but it's also very emotional for people. You know, things like, um, let's say, a snow day, something as simple as a snow day. You're never going to get a snow day right. 50% of the people think you should have taken them to school anyway, and other 50% think that they, they shouldn't go. So um, it's, an, it's an emotional when people give you uh, their most cherished possession, I'll say, and that is their children. Um, emotions play a large part in it, and I think that's why we see nationwide school boards becoming battlegrounds now because we've taken these other issues and put them on top of uh, boards of education and, and things that, like critical race theory that is not happening in any uh, K through 12 school as we as we know but the the emotions of of what some would say trying to indoctrinate children uh, make school boards a, a big battleground now and if, and if, and that's always been the case but now more so than than ever well let's talk more about that because I mean, again, it's Black History Month and Black History being taught in schools. We're going to take a quick break and then talk a little bit more about that. And I also want to hear about uh, how being a pastor influenced your, your work in the legislature. And then we'll have headliner of the week and Representative Quick's pick for his favorite thing in the legislative cafeteria. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm News and Observer politics reporter Don Bond here with North Carolina House member Amos Quick, a representative from Guilford County. Before the break, we were uh, talking about education uh, during his time on the school board. And because it's Black History Month, I want to talk a little bit more about how black history is taught in schools and a bill that I had talked to you about a couple of years ago when it went through the House that both Speaker Moore uh, said that he plans on bringing back. It was vetoed by Governor Cooper and Senate Leader Burgers also indicated that he would like to see something like that again. And what it does, it's um, framed as an anti-critical race theory bill. It doesn't doesn't mention critical race theory in the bill, but that's how um, you know opposition supporters have subscribed it. It basically regulates how how history is is taught in schools and and a couple other things. So, what do you think about when that's going to come up again in the House this year? History is um, not beautiful all the time. History is history. Things happen, and an accurate and complete telling of the history of this nation, I think, would only. Uh, help students and help uh, our society to understand where we have been and where where we have come from. But also as it relates to African-Americans, the contributions of African-Americans to this country and to this society. Uh, without telling the accurate history of African-Americans, we find people believing that African-Americans have never made major contributions to this country. Uh, even today, when you hear someone say that this is the first African-American to do something, people have a tendency to believe that um, uh, this is the first because this is the 
African-Americans are now only able to achieve at these levels. Uh, there's some of that thought process that goes on, but we need to learn about African-Americans who have achieved and the contributions that African-Americans have made. We need to learn the story uh, of African-Americans being able to overcome being brought here and enslaved for uh, uh, long periods of time. We need to learn about these things and how uh, we have progressed as a society. And I think trying to shut down any telling of the actual American history is detrimental to our students and to our society because we don't get a complete picture of who people are, where they've come from, and how they've contributed. So a bill like that I would be against uh, because it seems like we're, we're cutting and pasting history. You can teach this, but you can't teach that. Well, if these things happen, we have to be able to say that that, that they've happened and so that we as a society can move forward. What do you think? that? So Republicans have a supermajority in the Senate and they're one vote short of one in the House, depending on who's in the chamber at any given time to have that three-fifth supermajority if they need to override a veto. Do you think there are any House Democrats that would vote for that kind of bill? I don't think th I think everything fell along party lines last time. Or do you think they would be open to something like that? I don't know. And I, I don't know of any within the Democratic caucus that will uh, at this point in time. But I have not had specific conversations about that as of this time. As a whip, uh, whatever the uh, votes are, I will have specific conversations with those who are in my whip group. And we as a caucus will have those conversations. But that has not come up yet. So as of right now, my impression is that there would not be. But that's only an impression. What would you say to them or anyone that would support a bill of, of why why a bill like this is not needed that shouldn't pass? I would let them know how harmful it is to try to cut and paste history and to, to try to use history as a political football. I mean, we, we have to know the history of this country, and it's not always beautiful. And America is the greatest country that uh, God is allowed to, to come up on earth. I agree, and I think everyone will agree with that. That's why people try to get here uh, from and risk their lives to come to America because of the greatness of America. But uh, in order to get, to be this great, we've had to overcome some things, and we still have things that we have to overcome, and there's nothing wrong with sharing that story. How did you, uh, you're a pastor, how did you end up um, becoming clergy? Uh, well, it, it actually, it's a calling. It is most definitely a calling. Uh, my grandmother, who's since passed when I was a kid, used to say that she could see it in me. Uh, that I would be a pastor, and I did not agree with that at all and fought it, but it is definitely a call, and I was called into the pastoral ministry. I've been a pastor now for uh, over 10 years after spending four years in seminary, and um, um, I absolutely enjoy it. But it's, uh, it's, it's my true calling. Everything I've done before now um, does not give me the satisfaction that being a pastor does. Where did you go to seminary? Uh, Apex Theological Seminary and Andersonville uh, Theological Seminary. Yeah, yeah, two of them. There are a lot of North Carolina clergy that have been to That's right. Yeah. Apex. Yeah. Uh, how does, or did your grandmother get to see you uh, become a pastor? N the, no, my, my father's um, mother was the one who said she saw the calling on me. She did not. Um, my mother's mother did, um, um, and she used to travel with me when I was starting out, going to preaching in the uh, rehabilitation centers and the rest homes. Uh, she was right there with me, and she since passed too, and uh, and she got to see it. So your grandma, she knew, she, she knew, knew it was coming. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Listen to your grandma. That's right, always. <laughs>
So how does how does being a pastor inform your voting? I mean, there are big things coming up this year. Um, Republicans have said they'll bring um, abortion legislation. There's there's other things on certain social issues that that clergy, depending on denomination, might might vote um, one way or another. Like outside, like some of their caucus. Do you um, do you feel that yourself? Is there is there anything there as far as like you know party versus um, how you feel feel personally as as clergy with anything? Well, up until now, I've navigated, and I don't see it changing. I've navigated using three C's. First, my conscience. I don't want to violate my conscience. Uh, um, even after I'm not a legislator, uh, I have to live with the decisions that I make and the votes that I make. So I don't want to violate my conscience. Secondly, my constituency. Uh, I am a representative uh, and I was elected by people to serve their interest. And so uh, that's the second consideration that I take. And then the third consideration is the caucus. Uh, what what the, uh, as a Democrat, what the Democratic caucus um, position is, if the Democratic caucus has taken a position. So uh, conscience, constituency, caucus is the way that I've done it thus far. Do you see any any other bills or, or room to um, vote with the, the other side of the aisle this session? On the probably the you know the constituents answer too of what you think is best for your district whether it comes to the budget time or anything else like that. You know this I found out that this is a this is a, a tricky place in that uh, you never know how something is going to be presented to you. Uh, I've told my assistant whenever we are responding to emails or or uh, constituents that we don't pledge votes up front because we don't know what the legislation is going to look like. The only time I'll say to someone, this is how I'm going to vote is when I, I know wh exactly what the legislation is going to look like. And as you know, that's very rare because amendments can be offered even on the floor. So as a matter of practice, I, you know, I don't pledge my vote. I'd say that if it happens this way, then this is the way I'm going to vote, but I'm not going to, because you never know. You never know how it's going to come to you. That's kind of what makes covering the legislature fun. That's right. It's stressful. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Know. You never know. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move to something something lighter uh, about the legislative building, the legislative office building, and that's the food here. Right. Uh, I started asking new lawmakers on the podcast what their favorite uh, go-to item is. Either so, there are actually three. Everyone that's listening in this that's familiar with the building complex already knows this, but if you didn't know, there's a legislative cafeteria, there's the snack bar which has breakfast, and then there's like the cafeteria snack bar in the legislative office building, which is where Quake's office is. So what's your go-to at any of any of those three places? Guaranteed. I go to the snack bar uh, over in the uh, 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 legislative building, not this building. And when I walk in, they start making BLT for me. BLT every time. I've, every time I go in there, I'm getting a BLT every single time. I think Last week I went in, I had a cold, and I went in to get a ginger ale, and the guy was getting the bread ready for him. And I was like, no, 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 I just want a ginger ale right now. So my go-to is BLT every time. That's good. I haven't had it. I had the bacon in the snack bar this morning. That's pretty good. So is it the bacon that makes the BLT? It makes, yes, yes. The way they make it is abs on wheat, absolutely delicious. All right. Y'all heard uh, Representative Quick's uh, recommendation. All right. Let's go with our picks for headliner of the week. Uh, Representative Quick, who or, or what is your headliner of the week? I think Medicaid expansion, uh, the fact that we've gotten 
I think I can see the finish line from now and hadn't been able to see it before. This is my fourth term and I've always supported expanding Medicaid. But now there's some energy around the building about the fact that this is going to officially happen. So I'm excited about that and think that's going to be the headliner of the week. It's been what we've been talking about. For sure. Headliner of the past couple of years. That's right. There we go. Next few years. Let's hope we get it across the finish line. That's right. That's right. All right. My headliner uh, is also something that happened in the House this week. Uh, North Carolina Central University, the HBCU in Durham, their their football team won the Celebration Bowl. And as champs, they came to the house. They also went to the executive mansion, too. But it was pretty cool watching uh, you know, their variety. Like Roy Williams has been in the house. Dale Earnhardt has been in the house. But when you see a whole team come in and I was sitting in my press corner and watching all the players come in and just like just the look on their face where they're just so excited to be there in this moment, you know, and in front of everyone that that was really cool. So um, my uh, I think it was Representative Hawkins who, who said, you know, Eagle Pride and Amplified. So I know that, you know, you're the Aggie is your district, but, you know, we have to give Central. A little yeah, applause. we have to give Central a round of applause. And, and I'm glad for Central. But as an Aggie uh, representing uh, Greensboro, I could not make Central the headliner of the OK, week. well, I did. Right. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm very proud of and good to see those guys and glad to see their success. All right, Representative Quick, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Hope you uh, may come back another time. Um, For the News and Observer, I'm Don Bond. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.